a golden god! An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> I don't know who's weirder, you or me. You just put the law in my hands, and I'm gonna break your heart. Nobody puts baby in the Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Movies for a Life. I am one of your co-hosts, Michelle Agan. And I'm your other co-host, Brian Kuyper. Hey, Michelle, I have a question for you. I bet I know what it is now. Do you know what it is? That I thought about yeah. it. Miss me? I knew it. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yes, I did. It's been a while, and I'm glad to be back talking about a pretty awesome movie. This is a good one to bring us back to recording. This is a good one. I, I've been on vacation and then we were going to record last week, but I hurt my back very badly. <sighs> I just, I, I don't even know what happened. It just kind of went on me. Um, so I've been out of commission for- Old man Brian. Yeah. it's. It, I mean, it was screaming in pain uh, when it first happened. So it was, <laughs> it was bad. It was very, very bad. Okay. That's a good enough excuse, yeah, I guess. Chiropractor was magic and I've been- <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot of him this week, and uh, we seem to be back on track. Um, getting up about Good. every 45 minutes to <laughs> make sure that I don't seize up. Uh, but, you know, hey, it's it's a going okay. It's going okay. A lot better than it was, that's for sure. So. Good. Glad to be back. Definitely. Anyway, this is a great movie to, start, to come back to. Uh, one that we both love. One that we've both seen a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think I've seen this more recently, you know, within the past past couple years than I ever have before. That is, well, did you want to introduce this one? I introduced the first one, so... Okay, sure. What? I introduced the, the original. One. Way back when we covered the original. Oh, the original what? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, because we're going back into another horror franchise for this episode from our favorite horror director, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah, now this hey. uh, movie came out... Uh, the well, best. One of the things, yeah, second best, but it's really, really close. <laughs> and uh, I'll, give a, I'll give a caveat. Here's here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. My favorite. I think that this is a more polished film. I think it's mm -hmm. maybe more imaginative. It's more daring in some ways. But the first one's pretty daring too. I think honestly, if the original had had just a little bit more budget, it would be just as polished as this one, I think. The imaginative nature of how Wes Craven approached both the original Nightmare on Elm Street and this one are really unique and really a, the sense of how he just sort of bends reality and and messes with your brain in both mm -hmm. versions and both you know so many great callbacks to the original in this one they're just a yes. great uh, partnership of films 
they really they're different enough too that it's not exhausting to watch them as a pairing you know that's pretty perfect pairing i know sometimes people are like "Ah, i don't want to pair something that is so similar you know but they're not like the other sequels the other elm street sequels sort of happen in that realm whereas this happens outside the realm of those movies and i find that really to be a unique and fascinating way of approaching the material you know i was just giving you shit when i said it was because (laughs) it's just my favorite um it's the one i've seen the most out of uh the nightmare franchise which is honestly the sequels are not ones that i have actually seen a whole lot like even like dream warriors i don't think i've watched that one like maybe five times my whole life but this one i've seen a ton a ton a ton a ton and i when i go to want to watch a nightmare movie now i'm gonna watch the original or i'm gonna watch new nightmare and i actually from our uh, discussions like on the show and off the show like over text and stuff about the original like i have way way more of appreciation for that one than i ever have before and so now they're yeah they're like the perfect pairing to go together when i think about these two movies and yeah the sequels are fun but i like that these are more um not not more realistic i don't know they're they're not as Mm -hmm. wacky and out there with um some of the effects and some of the dream stuff i like that a little bit more i like that it's kind of more grounded more talking about like he's wes is uh what am i trying to say wes wes is attempting to comment on a lot of different things that they don't really get into with the sequels you know it's just it's just more about the backstory Mm -hmm. and the about freddy and like expanding that his little universe and the kills and making cool kills this he's like really getting into like um a lot of different uh, things that'll be fun to talk about as we go through this movie yeah okay i don't want to shit on the sequels okay uh, let me I'm not. S- no I'm, I'm not <laughs> saying you are but it's gonna sound like i am Okay. Okay. And I just want to make that clear. I enjoy every single one of them to some extent, at least. Okay. Mm, I do too. I think that all of them, minus the Wes Craven ones, fundamentally misunderstand what Wes Craven was doing with the first movie. And with the seventh movie. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think... That makes sense. <laughs> I think they they turned Freddy into a slasher because they understood the slasher. Two is a little bit different because it's a possession movie. And I think that they understand a possession movie too. But what Wes was far more interested in was... I mean, honestly, Freddy is not in either of the movies that much. He's in in either of his movies all that much. You know, he's not really mm-hmm. the star because the ideas are the star. You know, the yeah. the ideas are about the nature of reality and how we can move from one form of reality to another so easily without even realizing it i mean the world of dreams the world of consensus reality as he sometimes called it okay i should probably say (laughs) this up front i have been uh knee deep in research on wes craven probably more like chest deep at this point (laughs) (laughs) eyeball deep over my head maybe eyeball deep (laughs) um yeah i have been uh writing i'm currently working on two their chapters uh for for books on Wes Craven for two different editors for two different books and um it's it's been stressful that might be why my back went out it's it's a lot of work and but I've read and listened to interviews and watched interviews and done so much over the past couple months on Wes Craven that I'm just I mean probably Mm -hmm. even more 
or at least, yeah, even more than I did when I did my lengthy, you know, series of articles on Wes Craven. I'm doing even more now, and it's been a lot, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm going to throw out some of these things, no doubt, that I've picked up in my research along the way. So, <laughs> but the ideas of, you know, rubber reality, a flexible reality of where you're able to move between the nightmare world and the real world, quote unquote, we don't really know if it's the real world. If you don't know what I mean by that, that go back and listen to our Nightmare on Elm Street episode. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then in this one, there's a real sense that you're going from dreams to the reality of the film to the reality of the world outside the reality. Film. You know, I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of movement across these different spectrums of reality. And it's done so effortlessly by this point is the thing. You know, yeah. I think the budgetary constraints of Nightmare 1 made it a little bit challenging to really convey some of that stuff but I think they do it pretty well uh, in that movie even though uh, there are those constraints whereas here I mean he's kind of just able to do so much of what he wanted to do and you know Wes Craven has said this is pretty much the movie he set out to make and that is sort of like yay you know he had final cut on it yeah you know he Seriously. he didn't have uh, Bob Shea coming in and saying you got to do something else with the ending uh, <laughs> you know because <laughs> you know that that's I think I expressed it pretty clearly that's my big gripe about the original <laughs> movie is that the ending blows yes um, the ending just totally undermines everything that it was happening in the rest of the movie but so i gotta say there's there's a lot of reason and i understand why you and heather langenkamp and robert england uh feel this is the best nightmare movie i get it i i totally get it Uh, but maybe what separates it for me is just the personal level that i experience with the original and you know that always comes into it and to be fair Mm -hmm. this one couldn't exist without the first one (laughs) sure sure but at the same time you know i've said i prefer scream four to scream one sure (laughs) which you know they're again those are super close i love them both almost equally i just give a slight edge to uh four even though four there could not exist without one. So I, I I understand sort of both sides of the argument on this one. I also love just like what he's playing with here. Like, I don't remember first seeing this movie because it's one of like the uh, kind of an earlier look into a meta of course. Absolutely. So I don't remember like when I what I first thought when I watched this, you know, that you know Heather Langenkamp and all these other people from the movies were playing themselves. Because listening to Wes's commentary the other night was uh, how I first rewatched it, which was uh, really nice to hear his voice again. And it, you could tell it was from it was from not too long after this because he had he was talking about like he was currently working on Vampire in Brooklyn. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> he mentions that, and I was like, oh wow, okay. So he, he mentioned like trying to confuse the audience a little bit, you know, like with um, whether or not this was like real or not, like or, like um, them having uh, a strange reaction, like not really sh- not sure what to make of the movie, like with people playing themselves yeah. in it, you know, it's still like a really cool way to approach that because it gets into um, I like that he said this is came out the way that he wanted it to because in the scene in particular with him, it seems like this was a story that he was like really into. Like I love hearing him when he mentions like the stuff that he likes to put into his movies. He likes like, um, and it seems like he likes 
like ancient like yes, storytellings uh-huh. and he's very he's very he's very into like like putting that kind of symbolism mm-hmm. in his movies he mentioned something about like uh birds you know like in this one like you can hear the sound of a bird you know birds are like the harbingers of death or something yep. and, and it's like well that's just like no one else would notice that but you could tell like that's the kind of stuff that he was really into and so this seems like this was an awesome story like making freddy is not really freddy in this movie he is this ancient evil this is just a cool way it's cool twist on the story uh, but still keeping it like a nightmare movie even mm-hmm. though i was trying to like apply like freddy the, the rules that we kind of talked about in our uh, nightmare episode i was trying to apply like the freddy rules to like some scenes in this and i was like well i can't really do that can i because he's yeah. not freddy he's not freddy you know yeah and i i noticed some of that in certain scenes in the film as well that i was like oh wait a minute yeah, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about those when we talk about elements from the film itself, because uh, I think we right. there are some plot points that I think are definitely worth hitting. I don't know if we'll go through all of the plot, but one of the things that th- that's some of the stuff that I found really interesting. Of course, you know, Wes Craven's background was as a professor, a uh, humanities professor. He got a, a major in literature, a double major. His undergrad degree was in English literature and uh, psychology. So he's got all of these background kinds of things going into this and so you can and you can see that i mean the interest in psychology comes through pretty strong in this as well um i think that's a interesting thing and of course his own upbringing i think religion in in the fundamentalist religion there's the idea of from the first film of the sins of the fathers being visited upon the children uh that is something he dealt with a lot i mean even though he said he never directly dealt with religion in his movies really or with his brand of it he totally (laughs) did i mean it was always in the background by the end he was kind of admitting that these things were in his movies but he early on he didn't want to early on he didn't want to think that he was like i made too big of a deal about it it's not really part of it (laughs) you know Um, But he sort of changed his tune after a while. I think people, critics started to notice it and say, you know, hey, Wes, um, (laughs) there's there's stuff here (laughs) that you're working through. I don't know if you know it, but you are. Um, And he probably being a being a self-reflective person, as this movie is, this entire movie is Mm self-reflective. And, you know, he only directly dealt with religion in uh, Serpent in the Rainbow and uh, Deadly Blessing. So, I mean. Everything else is sort of subtextual, but it's there. And I think that as I was watching this, I was realizing Dylan is very much Wes Craven as a child. Uh, in a, I think so. For a lot of reasons. I find that to be a fascinating thing. There are a lot of great parallels with his personal biography and that character in particular in this movie. His father dying when he was really young. Yeah, yeah. his father died when he was very young. But Freddy is also sort of a <laughs> Paul Craven, his father, who was angry and had a horrible temper and all he remembers about his father are memories of fear. Uh, so uh, Freddy was, came from some extent from that. But in this context, because mm-hmm. this is not Freddy, I mean, this version of Freddy, this entity has been, you know, uh, Kronos, you know, eating his children (laughs) and has been maybe the Cyclops in the Odyssey and has been the witch in Hansel and Gretel and has been Uh all these different things 
you know, over the course of, of history and in various stories. And I love that idea that yeah. not, not only is this movie so, I mean, technologically, I mean, movies are new. Movies are very young, right? So you use this new technology to tell this very ancient kind of story, but you're yeah. also telling a very modern version of it by being meta in the way you approach it so i i think it's it's really clever have it be about movies yeah uh-huh. yeah <laughs> yeah how it's kind of all of these things is really um is really quite brilliant and i think i know people say this is sort of the precursor to scream but sure. i actually i actually think he's doing something more intelligent here than even in scream scream so. is scream is meta in a sense but it's about an audience it's about people who watch horror movies it's not about the makers of the movies themselves i feel like there's so much more i can mine from this story just about all different yeah. aspects of what he's trying to say than i came yeah. from scream even though yeah i love scream even even though there's a hell of a lot you can mine out of scream but it, yeah. it's not not quite like this this is very personal movie i mean mm-hmm. he said that between nightmare on elm street and this movie those are his two most personal films and i can see that the more i learn about craven the more i can see that being the case because i mean he just poured his heart he poured everything and risked everything essentially as did bob shay to get the original nightmare even made he was out of money he hadn't had a job in a long time uh after swamp thing was kind of a disaster it just wasn't happening right and um bob shea took this risk you know after every studio had rejected nightmare some of them twice then it ends up being this huge phenomenon especially the sequels you know the sequels turned freddy into something different right you know Mm -hmm. and when finally you know they're approaching the 10-year anniversary uh bob shea calls wes in and says hey we want to fix things we want we want to do right by you because we understand that you've had some issues yep. and, and and they had i mean there, there were some there were some serious issues uh that had happened uh in the course of the sequels and they gave him the option to make a new film and he's like okay but i'm only going to do it if i can do it in a way that's interesting to me and i like, all right all right you know come up with what you can <laughs> and he went back and watched the sequels and just couldn't make any sense out of them because there wasn't any continuity and each one had just sort of became its own thing you know their own version of it none of them were really cohesive right. uh, was was one of his big problems and then he had a dream <laughs> and in this dream he's there at some gathering with robert england and robert england's in his makeup doing his whole freddy shtick and Wes craven's off in the corner and said this is the problem with freddy freddy's become a comedian and then he woke up and was like hey there's an idea <laughs> and so what if we got back to the essence of what freddy is and then he started talking to bob shea and heather langenkamp and robert england and john saxon and saying you know what's your experiences you know sarah risher some of the people who show up in this movie and saying you know how has your life changed how did making that movie affect you and that's where it all came from yeah and i think it's brilliant it's brilliant what they did with it from there yeah and you know big kudos to all of them for wanting to get that personal too with some of the stuff that Wes wanted to do with this movie, like personal for him and also, you know, very personal for Heather Langenkamp. Especially for Heather Langenkamp. Especially her. 
Yeah. yeah. Because she, she like some of the men- mental illness stuff, um, you know, she had a stalker. Now, it's funny, you know, the stalker thing came because of just the 10 of us, <laughs> of us. Not, <laughs> not because of Nightmare on Elm Street. And the thing is- That's I, not funny, but I was just laughing. It's, it's not funny, it, but I mean, it is ironic. Because the person was upset because just the 10 of us was canceled. Like, okay. Yeah. I like that show, but okay. Yeah. And one of the things that was Gosh. interesting- Just scary that people could it, be that terrifying. obsessed with you. God. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and the thing is, I had read a lot about the making of Nightmare on Elm Street and etc. So I knew all the names of these people. I knew who they all were. I had followed them. And I loved just the 10 of us. And Heather Langenkamp was was my favorite on that show. I mean, I, I, I thought she was just so sweet. And, and I, kn- I know the other girls were three of <laughs> three of the four sisters in that were in Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Um, <laughs> That's right. That's yeah, right. They were. Joanne Willett's in two and uh, Brooke Thies is in four. She turns into the cockroach. So it's just one of those things where, where I kind of, I kind of knew who Heather Langenkamp was, you know, outside of the Nightmare on Elm Street context mm-hmm. when I finally saw this and I, I was like, oh, I know it's not Nancy, it's Heather Langenkamp, the actress. And I know that who this person is is sort of you know and i thought that was really cool and i thought this it was just kind of mind-blowing and i i didn't even know until later that she was married to a special effects special effects guy yeah. guy and all that sort of thing i think it's good but you know as a mother and stuff and all of the things that she she allowed herself to be pretty vulnerable with what wes craven was writing for her and i think that's yeah. really commendable to be willing to do that among the many things that this movie is about sometimes i like watching it as kind of a redemption for Nancy and for Heather. I think that's a, a good way to look at it too. Yeah, I was I wanted to hear what you more of what you had to say about that too. We'll get into it. Okay. This is the start of it. Because um start, okay. <laughs> we're just we're just starting out for conversation. We don't really have a um flow or any kind of structure in mind for this particular episode so we're probably going to be going like all over the place but that's kind of fun sometimes to do that yeah because one of the other things that this movie is about that is um, really interesting to me and for the, the people involved was um wes's concern about what he had created basically which i understand like part of me you know like being a huge horror fan and relatively normal i think part of me that kind of hurts a little bit like some of the stuff i've heard him say like meeting people at conventions and being like them talking about the gory or bloody stuff that they really like in movies and being concerned about a person like that it's like well that's not that's not really what that means, but you you, know, you understand that like, you don't know, like you haven't dealt with the same kind of stuff like that celebrity, especially when you think about Heather Langenkamp, you know, having a stalker, you know, you, you don't, we don't deal with that kind of um, stuff as much as celebrities who, who make this kind of stuff do. But, and that's a very valid concern for him to have. You yeah. Know? You know, what's interesting, I think the the limo driver is supposed to be one of those. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, because he says, is. Cause, cause says, oh, I love your stuff. And then he talks about how when the girlfriend was sliced open and then yeah. when all the blood came out of your boyfriend's bed, you know, just describes the most violent scenes in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, we know what that means when we say stuff like that. You know, like, yeah. it's cool, yeah. the special effects and stuff. But when you're hearing it from somebody that you don't know, you know, and you're from, you're, you're from the movie. You're kind of a name, a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't. You can't really trust people. <laughs> I understand that. I understand it too. I mean, Wes Craven. Okay, he said it more sort of in conjunction with why 
he kept turning down Scream. Okay, because he had been asked mm-hmm. to to direct Scream like three times before he finally said yes. And what it was, because he was really concerned about certain tropes within the horror genre, uh, particularly things that he he promised his daughter he would never, after Swamp Thing, he would never have a heroine fall down in a movie again um, for no reason. Huh. Um, okay, and, I like and, that. Yeah. <laughs> He says it's so stupid. Why did yeah, Adrian like Barbo fall down? <laughs> she, there's no reason for her to fall down. She's not clumsy. And he was just like he he wasn't going to. After Last House, he was like, I'm not going to do something that violent again. I'm going to focus more on suspense and and sort of the subtext and the things that I find interesting. And Last House is an angry, angry movie, and it is what it is. And I think it's important in a lot of ways. Uh, for the horror genre uh it's a Mm -hmm. tough movie and it's in some ways it's not a very good movie but in others it's a great movie i mean it's really um and that's the thing about last house is it's 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 a challenge for me um yeah but after sort of that first chunk of movies from nightmare really to the end of his career almost all of his movies have some element of like female empowerment you know like the the heroines are very are very strong you know they're all about i mean nancy is sort of the prototype for so many of that came after you even look at some of the characters he didn't write you know like um lisa and red eye Uh, i I see a lot of yeah yeah, she's fantastic but i see a lot of nancy in her you know Mm -hmm. she even brings killian murphy onto her own turf at the end and fights him on her on her ground (laughs) you know it's very and and at the end she kind of turns her back on him and walks away i mean it's very much like the end of nightmare on elm street just in a non-supernatural setting um Mm -hmm. and it's interesting when i watched them all in a row and i and i watched nightmare and red eye not too far apart it was like whoa they're almost two different versions of the same sequence it's really interesting but he he was one of the things he was really concerned about you know before making scream was tropes like you know just the misogyny in horror movies he was concerned that how they torment casey becker at the beginning of scream was just like, is this going to mess up my karma? Is the he sort of jokingly said that, but I think he meant it. You know, I was just like, I'm I'm mm-hmm. really concerned about the violence and depicting violence in movies because I mean, he talked about meeting Quentin Tarantino after a screening of Reservoir Dogs and just thinking he was just kind of appalled by the movie and apparently quentin tarantino said he's like you with last house and and hills have eyes that was that was that was for you man and wes was like really you know this the responsibility of that i think weighed on him a little bit and he was concerned in the 90s that he had done something that might be negative to society you know maybe some of these things had crept into his mind that he'd heard over the years a little bit and they find their way into this script. I mean, there's a whole yeah. section with, um, you know, Freddie's going to try and get you when you're at your most vulnerable. You know, that scene at Wes's house yes. is wild in that way. You know what I'm talking about here? Because he said, okay, so Freddie's going to try and get you when you're at your most vulnerable. And, and this is after Chase, her husband has died. And he said, you mean you knew about this? And he says, it, it was just a script. It was just a dream. And he says, you know, damn well, it's more than that now. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like take some responsibility for yeah. what you are creating and putting into the world. I think that is in his head in this movie. And, yeah. you know, as a person who loves horror movies, I love violent movies. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to act out any of these things in real life. That's not um, the case. But I think 
I think he's exploring some of those things here and grappling with them. And he does the same thing in Scream, in my opinion. The more I watch Scream, the more I see that. And I I, I find that fascinating. So anyway, (laughs) I really went on a tangent there. You've been reading so much on Wes. You have all these things in your head. <laughs> I do. I do. I do. I'm, I, I hope you can you can make us sound cool <laughs> on this, uh, with this episode because because I'm I'm just like oh, sorry if I if I go off like that. I just know that that's like a huge debate again because yeah we are horror fans and so like we know like from our side of it <laughs> that mm-hmm. I just wish you could tell Wes like yeah you didn't really have to worry that much like I understand that he just was that kind of person that he would worry about the um the effect that something even if it affected one person in a bad way that would probably have you know been devastating to him but you know the, at the same token you know he said you know horror films don't create fear they release it he would also say you know at other times he would be concerned of people who don't watch horror movies because exactly. they don't There's, they aren't using that release valve you know it's just that thing of like both things can be true <laughs> at the same yeah. time you know they can be dangerous for some people, hugely cathartic for others. And, and you know, I think, in, um, not to bring up Scream again, I think he brings up, you know, the way he has Skeet Ulrich play the line, movies don't, don't you br- blame the movies, Sid, don't you blame the movies, you know, mm-hmm. movies don't create psychos, movies make psychos more creative, and he's stabbing Stu while he's saying more creative. Yeah. I think that is showing that he's holding that intention in that scene, you know, in Scream. And he does that here as well, where he's saying, yeah, you know, we've we've got uh, (laughs) this person because Billy Loomis became what he was in part because of the movies he watched. I mean, there's in part, yeah, in in part, it's there in the movie. He's also psychotic, but you know, I mean, there's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but there's some interesting exploration of the psychology going on, and um, I keep bringing up Scream because I think there is a relation between these two movies. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason why I I love Wes Craven is that he was willing to um, explore that part of himself and of the horror, you know, community as a whole you know then he wasn't just yeah. gonna be like nah not nah, horror movies aren't bad horror movies are good for you no he was willing to go in and say no like maybe this wasn't really right maybe we shouldn't have done it this way and i don't know <laughs> Yeah, I just his, respect, I respect a self-reflective person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's willing to examine the issue from multiple yeah. angles. And, you know, I think it's, it's fascinating some of the kinds of things he discussed and he put it into his movies and he struggled with things in his movies. And that's why I think he's counts for me as an auteur filmmaker because he puts the things that he is genuinely interested in into his films there are all these through lines through all of them uh whether he wrote them or not that he's exploring from beginning to end of his career a lot of them sort of meet in this movie in particular because i mean this was the last movie he wrote until 2010 with my soul to take that's true you know so i mean the the last half of his career he wrote one movie and he's sort of known as a writer director for the first half Mm -hmm. of his career it's just kind of fascinating so the main three things i think are are the sins of the fathers being visited on the children yes that happens here the idea of family uh as sort of the nature of family and what all that means especially to children is is all here and then the blurring of reality 
So all those three things are probably stronger here than they are in really anything else he ever did. So yeah. all those threads, you know, sort of come together here fully. And it's it's wonderful. Well, one thing I like is that the sins of the father thing, like he's talking about himself in a way. <laughs> he is. Since he is the father. He's he is the father, the father of, of Freddy. Yeah. That sort of links back to what we were just talking about with violence and all these things. You know, uh-huh. you know, Robert England said that this movie was a chance for them to see each other again, but it was also a chance for them to look at this and say, what have we done? Yeah. Because think about what Freddy became by 1987, 88. I mean, he's hosting his own TV show. He's got a 900 number he's being used to sell pajamas to little kids you know halloween Mm -hmm. costumes all that stuff it was everywhere i mean he was you know heather even says it in this movie every kid knows who freddie is he's like santa claus or king kong or king kong you know she adds that as sort of an afterthought you know but i think the santa claus one is probably more apt to be honest, right. because by that point, sure. that that is what he had become. He had become sort of like this comfortable presence. But um, she shows in that um, the scene she does the television interview. Yes, like everybody in the audience, all the even the little kids are dressed up like Freddy and cheering yeah. for Freddy. You're all my children now. Children now. Yeah, and it's like um, <laughs> you know, giving giving people high fives with the glove, and I mean, <laughs> I like that you get to see both of Robert England. Freddy's in this like you get to see him because one thing that I love about Robert England is that he loves being Freddy he loves this character and you can see him having the kind of fun with it that he's had with it like all the years through all the movies in that scene at the television studio like that's him that's him like I love this I love doing this but then you also see him do the meaner more evil version of Freddy like Mm -hmm. no this is actually who this guy is this is how we need to be portraying him and it's kind of also a comment like on the little kids dressing up as Freddy like you realize you're dressing up as a child molester murderer (laughs) right And that's I know they really they soft pedaled the in the original movie they soft pedaled that because the McMartin case the um with all the you know ritualistic child molestation devil worship trial that was going on uh yeah. they de- they decided let's just make him a filthy child murderer and let people interpret that how they will which was probably smart there was something in this movie that i heard for the first time that kind of uh emphasizes that a lot more yeah i had never heard this line before when she gets the phone call where they do the recreation of the tongue coming out of the phone i had the subtitles on and he goes i touched him i touched him i was like what That got me. I was like, damn. I, and I'd never heard that line before for some reason. I'd never caught it. Yeah. I mean, in one sense, it's I was able to break through into the real world, sure. you know. But on the other, obviously, there's that subtext there. I mean, that not even subtext, really. But it's something that, that was kind of soft-pedaled through the original series. In the remake, they sort of... <laughs> pedal to the metal with it um but they kind of pedal to the metal with everything in that there's not a lot of subtlety in that uh, movie (laughs) but it's just fascinating how craven he can he can get a lot of things into i think as we've discussed with the first one his movies have a lot of rewatch value because i think you can see a lot more as you as you go into them more especially you know and 
there are some that are probably not really worth it. I mean, I don't know if you really need to watch The Hills Have Eyes 2 uh, all that often. <laughs> but ones like this especially, yeah. Yeah, but but I think the ones that, uh, like New Nightmare and Nightmare on Elm Street, especially the ones that, and you know, uh, I think People Under the Stairs and, and I also urge people to go back and take a look at My Soul to Take again. You might be surprised. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, because it's got some interesting stuff going on there and we may bring that one up again um but ah yeah I, i have found that a lot with with his movies that you can most of them like you can take completely at face value yeah for what's happening but then you go back and kind of look at especially if you know him you know, you know the kind of things that he, the kinds of things that he struggled with, and you kind of go back and look. Especially, I would say, maybe because I'm just been thinking about these two the most, obviously. Right. But yeah, definitely Nightmare and New Nightmare. Yeah, there's a quote in that biography. It's at the top of one of the chapters. I think it's top of the last chapter, and it says, and this is a paraphrase. It's a quote from Wes Craven. It says something like, "Yeah, some people can watch Nightmare on Elm Street and see it as a treatise on reality and the nature of reality, and other." can see it as just a wild ride they're both right mm-hmm. it's true and, and it's it's true with both of these i think they're that's something that i think you know we can't negate is that both these movies are a lot of fun oh, they're yeah. a lot of fun to totally. watch they're they're extremely entertaining and i i've watched the original dozens of times i've watched this one probably a good dozen or 20 the, and i get more out of this one now than I used to there I, I got kind of caught up in a couple of things that were kind of like eh, it's all right um but <laughs> um but now I I actually I I find myself really digging especially uh the first two acts you know like before they go down into the ruins at the mm-hmm. very end and I get why it needs it needs a big climax like that and I like that sequence but I think the first the rest of it is just like this yes. is really my thing you know what I mean mm-hmm. and you know some of these sort of weird things that ended up happening like there was an actual earthquake yep <laughs> while they were filming this and it was like a few yeah. a few weeks after they had shot the the earthquake stuff in this movie is when I guess uh, it's the big it's known as the big Northridge earthquake yes it was a 7.1 on the the Richter scale, which is eerie because of obviously the seventh nightmare movie. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so um, when, when he's you know talking about this movie being about you know the creator, you know possibly have creating you know real things and in, in real life, like that's just another like eerie kind of layer that this has because the earthquake really happened. The the footage of um, Heather driving and you see all like the the structures that are damaged, like that that's actual damaged structures from that from the earthquake, and they use. The actual like news footage mm-hmm. from the news coverage of the earthquake in the movie later on. So that, <laughs> I've, I've always loved that that happened. I was like, ah, oh, so he this is about like something he's created coming into the real world, and now something he's created is coming into the real world. <laughs> That's actually kind of perfect for this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, it's <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's a wild thing. Okay, so I mean. <laughs> We're kind of okay, one thing all that, over the place. One thing that I like about this movie is that it doesn't ignore that the other sequels exist. They are mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, like in the interview, you're just talking about, you know, Freddy's that Freddy's dead and gone. You know, that's obviously from the previous mm-hmm. movie was Freddy's yeah. dead. And they, you know, they talk about it like it's, it's not a sequel that uh, ignores um, anything that came before, but it is most directly tied to the original, yeah. which I kind of like, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't say like none of that ever happened. And we're just going to go back to the beginning, but it has the most, it has the most reverence for the original. It does. It does. And, uh, but I think it's important that the sequels exist in this movie. Oh, totally. 
yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, you, you can't part. Yeah, I mean, because because you don't have the Freddy from phenomenon that they're kind of commenting on unless you have those sequels. Right. This movie doesn't come out the same if you only have the first movie. It right. doesn't have the same effect at all. It's almost a reward at the end. You know, if you watch an entire series, this is just sort of like, oh, I experienced all that because this is <laughs> something really special <laughs> to cap this all off. And I, I've, it's mm-hmm. unusual that a seventh film can be that good, you know, because it's not really a seventh film. It's a first film. In a way, you know, <laughs> um, because it's so it's so grounded in a different type of storytelling. I mean, meta narrative it existed, meta fiction existed before Wes Craven wrote this yeah. movie, of course, but not something that I'd seen a lot in movies at the before this. I mean, there were movies about making movies, and there were self aware horror movies before this. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think you you think of you know like uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Six, Jason Lives. I think is is a is a very knowing, winky kind of movie. Movie, um, um, that I find very funny and entertaining. Student Bodies is a great one. Sure. Even April Fool's Day, I think, is a good yeah. example. You know, uh, th- there have been a lot of self-aware horror movies. But this, uh, I don't remember a lot of movies about the people who were actually making the movie, going by yes. their own <laughs> names, playing, quote unquote, themselves. About a version the making, of themselves, sure. Yeah, yeah, about the making of their own movie. You know, I, I thought was yeah. a, a make, about the making of the movie they're in. <laughs> You know, which is which is another thing that is that is sort of trippy about it. It's not only a reflection on the first movie, they're reflecting on the movie that they are currently starring in as it's happening too. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's Wes it's is got, literally writing what is happening. It's very yeah, confusing. He's yeah. writing everything that has happened so far in the movie. He has already I love, written. I love when they show pages <laughs> of the script that it's like their conversations that they're having. Yeah, you know, it's like on his computer. It's like you just got to decide if you're willing to play Nancy one last time. And there it is on the computer screen, fade to black and the screen fades to black. You know, I mean, it's smartly done. It's clever, but it's not. A gimmick? It doesn't feel like a gimmick Mm-mm. to me. That's why, like, like I was saying, like, it doesn't ignore that the other sequels exist, but it is most closely tied to the original, which goes along with, um, I think, what one of the things that Wes was trying to do was to bring Freddy back to what you know he was originally supposed to be, and not what he became with the sequels. That's why all of the callbacks in this movie are to are the original the first film. Yeah, even one I had never even noticed before uh, until the other night because. Like all the, the like mentioned before, the the tongue coming out of the phone, her getting stuck in the stairs, they do again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even I would say that the claw coming um up between Chase's legs in the car is probably like kind of like the bathtub thing. Bathtub scene. That's, yeah, that's how uh-huh. I've always seen it. And then there's also Freddie coming up out of the bed. Uh, yes, you know, sort of rising up yeah. out of the bed and using out of the, the claw the sheets. To, yeah. to yeah, using the to claw, claw to cut out. through. Yeah, yeah, and when at the end when they kind of are play acting the the original uh nightmare again like in nancy uh nancy see now i'm gonna get confused heather's house changes to nancy's house and it's back to the original blue door that it was in the first one instead of instead of red and then when john saxon becomes donald thompson again and he's wearing like the original he's wearing uh, the original uh, costume 
Yeah. They're on uh-huh. the original costume, and she kind of does a little. There's a close up of his badge that he's got on his belt, and it says Los Angeles on <laughs> yes. it, not Ohio. <laughs> Which I thought was. I don't know if that was on purpose, but I thought it was cute if it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you know? I think there's an. Well, what's funny? It would make sense for that town, Elm Street. Okay. So in the original movie, it's sort of anywhere. We don't know where it is. There's no I think mention he, of the Didn't he originally intend for it to be Los Angeles, though, anyway? They don't I, hide I don't, the palm trees. Yeah, they don't hide the palm trees. You can see in the funeral scene in the first one. And then, of course, there's that famous bridge that Johnny Depp and Heather Lang camp mm-hmm. on. There's a big, big-ass palm tree right there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. all of that. But what's funny is, you know, later, I don't think they even mentioned that it's in Ohio until like four. Six, <laughs> I know? think. Yeah. There you go. It's, it is in six. Yeah. But they say um, Springwood in, they say Springwood in the two, second one. In two. But um, the thing is, Ohio kind of makes sense because, you know, Wes Craven grew up in Cleveland. Cleveland. Yeah. So um, there's that <laughs> connection that, may, <laughs> that might be why they put it in Ohio. But, you know, it doesn't really fit in with the setting of uh, but the thing is i think wes craven was kind of like this elm street is supposed to be americana and that line that's in six every town has an elm street is very mm-hmm. much the kind of idea that wes craven had in mind this could take place this on could, any this could happen street. anywhere yeah this is any street usa this is the quote-unquote american nightmare as it were uh mm-hmm. happening and i think that's what uh he's trying to tap into the fact that this movie takes place in Los Angeles is kind of a necessity <laughs> because that's where movies sure. are made, right? That's where the stars would live. Yeah. yeah. So it's, that's, I think why it's set where it's set in this case, but in the original, I mean, that house could be anywhere. That's why he chose that street. It's actually the same street as Halloween. Another thing that's a callback. This is a subtle callback that I haven't noticed until lately at the funeral scene. Jesu Garcia, who in the original is credited as Nick Corey is wearing Rod's jacket from the first movie. He's wearing his leather jacket. What, did the, we notice that? Yeah. He's wearing his leather jacket at the funeral. So, I mean, there, there are lots of little tiny details and then there are sort of big moments as well. But it never feels like any of those callbacks are being like shoved in your face. Like, Oh, Hey, remember this? It feels very it's real working. and organic to this story. Yeah. It's that not he's doing. I mean, now I think some people might call them Easter eggs or fan service or you know some of those things i don't think that's what they are in this movie i don't think so when you think about yeah when you think about what freddie is in this story and like what he's trying to do like him being this ancient entity that's been trapped in the freddie movies for for all these years and he's just kind of this is the form that he's in that the entity is in right now and that he kind of likes he needs to like recreate the stuff from the movies to come to life that's why like he when he's coming up out of the bed he waits he waits for nancy to take on nancy heather to take on (laughs) the role of nancy before he fully comes out so i think it's i think he's doing he's doing that stuff very specifically like on purpose to Mm -hmm. you know bring her back to the world of the movies like and you know to to recreate that stuff so that he can come into the real world and ironically freddie and dylan are kind of bringing these ancient stories you know this old story you know of hansel and gretel fairy tales bringing her into that as well you know by using the sleeping pills 
as breadcrumbs to they bring throw them, them into a freaking oven at the end <laughs> yeah they throw them into an oven at the end i just noticed too like something from um the commentary that i hadn't seen before is that dylan's bedside lamp is humpty dumpty so there's like little oh, yeah. um there's like little fairy tales stuff like dropped in throughout too and then there's a biblical reference with the snakes mm-hmm. when freddie's tongue gets sliced by dylan and it becomes it, a fork it becomes a tongue. serpent tongue yeah yeah so i mean that's very much you know sort of this image of the snake in the garden of eden so there's there's sort of calls to all these sort of ancient ideas you know and then you know like the seven deadly sins are written on the walls yes. of 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 the hell layer which it's you know it's very much you know craven put hell in a lot of his movies too there are lots of hell la- mm-hmm. layers you know bad guys starting with freddy you know freddy lives in hell you know, he lives in that boiler room and there's fire and there's furnaces and there's steam and there's pipes and there's heat. You can feel the heat from it. And that continued on in Serpent of the Rainbow. It's in Shocker. It's in People Under the Stairs. And it's certainly in this as well. So it's just kind of in all of those things where where the killer lives is kind of this version like vision of hell it's a dungeon usually and it's a fascinating thing that continues on through the whole series of movies that he made for in that sort of central portion of his career there you know i get it (laughs) this is this is sort of a this is sort of a funny scene but i love chase so much i love the part where he's driving his car (laughs) he's driving his truck (laughs) that's me in the corner that's me (laughs) in the spot Light. Light. <laughs> I love that scene. It's like, and, and have you have you seen the Never Sleep Again, the documentary God. Never Sleep it's Again? It's been it's been a while. Yeah, there's this insert shot of him scratching his balls. <laughs> Yeah, you know? and and the actor who plays Chase says, "I want you to know this, Wes. That's not the way I would scratch my balls. <laughs> this is the way I would scratch my balls." And you know, and then, and then they cut to they cut to Wes, and he says, "Yeah, we had we had a ball stand in for him. Um, it was <laughs> it's it's hilarious. That's funny. Of course, that culminates in one of the bloodiest scenes of the movie where Chase gets you know eviscerated. But there's this weird mm-hmm. shot in there where his shirt's like torn, but but there's no blood. It's just a moment. It's a second. I didn't even notice it after however many times watching it until this viewing. And I'm, I'm not even sure if I saw it correctly, but it looks like he's dying, but he's not actually cut. Like he fell asleep at the wheel, like he actually fell asleep at the wheel. And so it's oh. it's a it's a really sort of unique insert shot. And that's one of the things that I wanted to bring up to you too, how Freddy or the entity manipulates the real world. Because mm-hmm. there are a couple of things that happen there that are not in dreams, right? But someone is dreaming. Yes. I'm, I'm talking specifically about Dylan. Okay, so when Dylan is sedated right. by, by Jessica Craven, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right, Wes Craven. Uh, daughter is the smug little nurse <laughs> that look she gives it's just like i know <laughs> you know um this is the part that i was thinking about that i was saying that like i was trying to apply the nightmare rules yeah. to this but it doesn't really work it doesn't really work because dylan is the one that falls asleep and julie gets killed exactly r.i.p julie we love you yeah and and that's that's what because because we had talked about it's like because you you were saying in the first movie uh freddy can only kill the dreamer i still believe that okay and but here that's not the case. That's not the case Be- because it's not really Freddy. Right. I right. think that's and okay. Yeah. So Dylan is asleep. He's sedated. He falls asleep and Freddy shows up. Julie can't see him, mm-hmm. but she, you know, is 
hurt by him. Uh, he's she's dragged up the wall by him, killed, by murdered. Him? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I know. Murdered, and, and then fin- <laughs> finally, then the way he kills her, he just kind of looks at her and she just kind of falls dead. You mm-hmm. know, after after she's been cut, right? But the final death blow is like her neck snaps, and he hasn't even touched. He's not even touching her when it happens. It's it's very interesting. But the nurses come in and, and they see her on the ceiling. So it's they like, see her like in the air at, yeah. before she gets dragged. When he like yeah. first, I guess, grabs her through the back or something. They see her like flying through the air, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, and, <laughs> and then it continues to happen as Dylan crosses the street. You know, because he sees that he's being picked up by Freddy's claw and he's sort of floating in the air. But Heather sees him floating without anything yeah. there. So it's like this entity can manipulate because Dylan is dreaming. Yes, he's he's coming in through the dream, but he is able to manipulate in the real world. Yeah, because he's asleep when Dylan's crossing the freeway. Is he sleep? Is he actually sleepwalking across the freeway? And well, that's I mean, how... we, we have to kind of take Heather's word for it. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Like, and that's how yeah. Freddie appears to lift him yeah. up. Yeah, we kind of have to take Heather's word for it because she says, you know, he sleepwalks. You he sleepwalks. Idiot, you know? he yeah. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, there's a lot of interesting uh, sort of dream sequence things because even though it is, you know, uh, the entity attempting to get into the real world he is using some of freddy's rules to do it mm-hmm. one of them being dreams like when nancy falls asleep uh while god i did it too uh, so when, <laughs> when, See, when confusing. yeah when heather falls asleep in dylan's room and he says oboe's there and pukes all over her and all that and oh, then yeah. uh-huh. and then uh one of my favorite scenes frankly uh where fran bennett as dr hefner <laughs> comes in so scary says, that's it let's open him up cut the evil out of him <laughs> that glove is just creepy creepy stuff the way that glove looks is really freaky looking too it's different mm-hmm. than than the other than any of the other gloves look it doesn't um, it doesn't even feel like a glove it covers in, only in part of one. her hand it's like a strap yeah <laughs> huh. His yeah, just his new design too for the the claw is really cool. Yeah, and how this it's one. sort of like it it grows out of his hand. It's actually it's organically a part of him. It's like you yeah the bone instead of whatever um, you know metal mechanical bits you know he used to make it. It's actually like a part of him now. Yeah, and it includes yeah. a claw on his thumb. Which, claw on his thumb. Yeah, <laughs> she didn't never had before. It's like a full bird talon. You know, and you mentioned birds being the harbinger of death. It gives it kind of a bird-like bird of prey look. Yeah, you know, which is which is interesting because they have the have that really curvy one on the thumb. That's true. Yeah, Robert England said it was a little bit clumsy to work with that, <laughs> having <laughs> which, it on the thumb. I bet. <laughs> yeah, but uh, he uh, he made it work. So then, what is your? How do you feel about uh, Freddy's look in this movie? Okay. There are a couple of things I I really like about it. I think I think it's cool that he's not burned. I think it's you know sort of the muscle. It's more like skin rips and yeah, yeah. muscle rips or something yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Though there's one thing I do feel like. Okay, in the original movie, the makeup was multi-layered, so there was like a layer that was supposed to be like the mus the muscles underneath, and then they put sort of bits of flesh open flesh over the top of that and so they kind of move independently and there's a really cool look to that and they like based it with ky and he looks really nasty and shiny and glimmery and i almost yeah. wish they had taken it that one step further and done 
that and maybe showed him in the shadow a little bit more because the moment where he really looks scary to me and really looks awesome is the part where he comes out of the closet and the miss me uh, Mm -hmm. line. He's really terrifying in that shot. I think... Uh, but I, I don't know how you get around it in the hospital when the there's bright lights in there, things like that. He still looks really good in that. I scene, think it looks. Though. I think it looks cool. I, I like the contact lenses, sort of that pale contact lens that mm-hmm. they use, um, rather than England's own eye color. Because all his the hat other is movies, like green, except too, two uses. Yeah, his hat's different. I like the sort of the scruffy look to the old hat. I gotta admit, but mm-hmm. but I like the I, I like the overcoat. Yes, I don't know about the leather pants they one thing they do though i gotta admit they give them sort of a nazi-ish quality which is yeah never noticed yeah. that <laughs> yeah they kind of like tight leather pants with these army boots so it, it gives it kind of a kind of a nazi-ish the fascist look which i think is interesting uh sort mm-hmm. of another another level to it the trench coat actually comes from um wes craven's original idea for the look of freddy because Isn't that what the guy was wearing that he saw mm-hmm. the guy that was outside his window uh when yeah. he was a child he was wearing a trench coat and and a hat and the, the hat yeah a hat that was probably more like the one from nightmare one so yeah it's it's a cool look it's a sleek look it's interesting um i like mm-hmm. the I, I generally like it i mean obviously robert england had uh, been able to eat he was no longer a starving artist um by the time he got to new nightmares so so the makeup I mean, he's not he's a slender guy still you know because you see him outside the he makeup called he, Robert England fat. i did not i did not i'm just saying he when you put makeup on top of even a, a oh sure yeah if, if you're not cadaverous you know like he was in the first movie you're gonna you're gonna look yeah he's pretty he's, he's pretty thin yeah you're gonna he's he's gonna look a little bit more full i mean there's but i i also i do like though another thing that they did was they made him a little taller the boots have like a really thick heel on them so he does he, feel he, very tall in this one he, yeah. yeah he feels really big and and i think that really works for freddy um because robert england's like 510 i think he said he's not like super imposing and so they kind of made him a little bit more that you know and the coat kind of gives him some bulk too Bulk's um sure yeah and i think i think it's a it's a really I, I guess I'm. I've always been partial to the Nightmare One look. It's just me. I I know it's part of it is is you just can't see him very well, and I kind of like that about the Nightmare One look. I think Freddy's really is scarier when he's in the dark. I've always sure. thought that, and I think that's why the moment in the closet is just like the I love perfect that moment. So yeah. Much. It's, it, it's the perfect reintroduction. And there's something that I hadn't really dawned on me. I don't know why, because it's so, they sort of take their time with it. Because she notices the coffee pot on the floor of the, of has sort of jumped from her nightstand over to the yeah. floor of the closet. And yep. she kind of, she looks back and forth. You're like, oh, that's another that get- thing. That's another thing yeah. from the original, yeah. For having the coffee, the coffee pot. pot. Yeah. The coffee yeah. pot, yeah. Yeah, and I think the the cups look similar to what she was using in the first movie, really? <laughs> as I recall. Uh, don't quote me on that, because I, I might be making that up. I did notice, too, she drinks coffee throughout this movie a yes, lot. she does. I had she's, never she's noticed brought, that before. I was like, oh, yeah. she's brought coffee, like, everywhere she goes. She's everywhere. Bringing, she's, I thought that was really cool, too. Even before even before anything yeah. has really started, she drinks. she's drinking coffee throughout the whole movie. Yeah, because yeah, when she goes to New 
line. They bring her coffee when she goes mm-hmm. to uh, Wes's house. She yep. brought coffee. <laughs> it's like she's doing things from the movie. Like, because at this point, um, th- at this point that the scene you're talking about when he appears in the closet, that that's the first time that he ever like actually appears to her. It's like she's still trying to convince herself that that's not what's actually happening, even though she's doing things that she did, you know, in the movie, like with the co- having the coffee pot by her bed. Mm-hmm. And that same scene, she's reading all those uh, uh, scientific journals about, yeah. you, know, you know, children's psychology, Child, child's psychology to, tr- to try yeah. and come up with a, a plausible explanation for what's happening to Dylan when she knows yeah. the truth. Well, you know? she overheard she overheard Dr. Hefner saying that, you know, these early symptoms point to childhood schizophrenia. Yeah. So she's looking over that and and I get can we talk a little bit about Dr. Hefner? Yes. I, I think this I know you love this part. <laughs> I think this character I love is this part. Yeah. Fascinating. Right. It is. Because okay, Fran Bennett is wonderful in this. She's so she's kind of Funny. She's so scary. <laughs> and she's, she's funny scary. and she's scary because she's so tall and yeah. her voice is so commanding, you know. She's one of those people that she could just tell you to like, you know, put a coat on and it would scare you, you know. Yeah, yeah, cuz cuz in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, authority figures are always secondary villains, okay? Sure. Mm-hmm. Obviously the parents in the original um mm-hmm. are are the secondary villains. In some ways maybe the real villains of the piece, who knows. Uh if depending on how you look at it. Yeah. But here you know the secondary villain is all these medical personnel (laughs) Uh you know who are trying to get them to fall asleep go to sleep that is what you need you'll feel better you know and i think uh, on a broader level craven's his whole metaphor about sleeping being asleep is mean you know as opposed to awake to the problems of the world that you can sure. deal with being asleep means ignorant mm-hmm. and you, here you have authority figures you have i don't know the government or whomever saying go to sleep just like you know john carpenter's they live thing right it's like mm-hmm. stay asleep submit all this stuff it's the same idea. It's just, you know, he uses literal sleep as that metaphor. And so Dr. Hefner sort of serves a few purposes. First of all, she reveals, well, she doesn't reveal it. I think it comes up earlier. The sins of the father thing comes up in this uh, with mental illness mm-hmm. because Heather is concerned that she has passed on. Her biggest fear, she says, is I've passed on, uh, is that I have some mental illness in my family that I've passed on to Dylan. And Dr. Hefner says, signs point to childhood schizophrenia. Well, and then Heather discovers, hey, you know, it's the same symptoms as sleep deprivation. Yes. So staying on the sins of the father element, it was where she says, so she asks him, is there a history of mental uh, disturbance? And says, if there was, there's a good chance Dylan could be suffering from something passed down to him. She's sort of underscoring that sins of the father's idea and it's not sins that's not what i mean but i mean it's generational curses it's passing something down to your children that is a challenge to them right not saying that mental illness is a sin it's a sin i mean i mean i i I suffer from mental illness myself my children experience it as well it's not a sin but it is a burden that is passed hereditarily right yeah and i i think that is something that is is happening here but also i love the whole dr heff being named after the chairman of the MPAA thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when Craven, Craven says three things in his scene, 
three things that set the uh the entity loose on the world again oh uh, they are um, yeah they are it gets too familiar exactly I, Some, I thought about those too yeah someone waters it down or it's too upsetting to a society and it gets banned outright those yep. are the three <laughs> things that happened with freddie right you know yeah, i mean not exactly. just not just freddie i mean freddie wasn't banned outright but last house on the left was or this whole idea, you know, cut the evil out of your film, you know, cut the evil out of your child, you know, and right. Wes Craven's like, my Literally creation. Literally cut your film. Yeah. Cut your film, cut the blood out of your film. So I think Dr. Hefner, when you know that's the name of the MPA chairman who right. eviscerated <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street, shocker, and people under the stairs, among other, other things, you know, uh, you, you just kind of go, oh, okay. <laughs> It becomes, when you know that, that that's what he was doing, it becomes so obvious uh, in all of her lines, pretty much. Like, one of the first things that she says to to Heather is like, you haven't let him watch any of your films, have you? Like, I I very much believe that, you know, those kind of films can cause an unstable child to go over the edge. And you're just like, oh, my God. (laughs) It's like so on the nose. I know. I know. It really (laughs) is. But but the thing is, is it works in the movie because i mean obviously these are criticisms that he gets all the time yeah it's like he's created this this doctor that is genuinely concerned i think for both of them in certain scenes you can see dr hefner is Mm -hmm. when she's talking to her about you know you know being concerned about you know something having been passed like passed down to him like she is concerned about you know helping them both of them yeah yeah she is she is she said she asked have you been suffering from delusional events yeah the only way that she gets judgy towards her yeah. is about you know the oh you have the movies that she was in and whether or not dylan has been allowed to watch them especially um in the scene um i forgot what happens right before or after but in one of their last like confrontations she's where like she has uh, the cuts on her arms where yeah. she has where she's, yeah, she's fixing, fixing the, the cuts, cuts again her. that i think they've bled again and she's like oh you have let him watch let, watch your films you know and she just immediately gets like so angry and like well it's been an enlightening conversation you know or something yeah. like that like that's the only thing that she gets really judgy about so yeah that's very obvious that she's supposed to be the mpaa yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's just funny. This is kind of funny to me. <laughs> yeah, and 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 so I think that character, and obviously I think Fran Bennett is so good oh, yeah. in that role. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way she says, Miss Legenkamp, Miss Legenkamp, your son is fine. You know, <laughs> it's just the way she. I love her line deliveries. I think she's so wonderful in it. And <laughs> I guess uh, Pat- Patrick Lucier, the um, the editor, <laughs> and Wes would like while they were cutting the scenes would just be like imitating her. <laughs> <laughs> as Aww. they were doing it. you know they say they because they just loved thought her lines were so quotable and fun to say they, they and are. they really are they really are but i think it also uh. comes through like what is what does west say that this entity's like main like focus or goal is the murder, is the murder of, of, Innis- of innocence yeah which is what he feels like maybe he's doing through making these kinds of movies you know like his that's his yeah. concern that he's having mm-hmm. wes's yeah that totally makes sense yeah or even destroying i mean to you can you can read that line two different ways the death of innocence with a yeah, t in a like sense. the innocence or in a, people you know 
yeah, like individuals or in a sense as in the state of innocence. Um, yeah. And I think that is... The subtitle a, said innocent, like the state of innocence. Oh, really? <laughs> but I was like, yeah, but I was like, well, but it, actually it could be either one, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think he's saying the murder of innocence as in individuals in that scene. But the subtitles kind of bring out a subtextual idea. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, because because the death of innocence is something that happens to every human being at some point in their life. Your innocence will be corrupted somehow. And so when that happens is something that I don't know is 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 uncontrollable. I mean, you don't know when that's going to happen. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, like I we, I think this was off air just talking about how Dylan is very much reflection of craven as a child i honestly think that dylan is craven's most personal character ever because for a couple of reasons okay and and i wrote it down in a couple of parts uh first the scene after chase has died where uh, i keep on wanting to say nancy where heather (laughs) and dylan are in in the bed together and she reading they start no um after that they're in bed after Chase has died. The oh, Hansel and Gretel died. scene is, okay. yeah. He asks her, where's daddy now? Uh, she says, I don't, and, and the look on her face, you're not sure she really believes it. Uh, he's in heaven. He's with God. <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's almost like a trying to protect his innocence. You know what I mean? And says, what, and then he asks, you know, the, the $10 billion question. Right. Why, why, why does God <laughs> why does let there God be let bad, bad things? Bad things happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's something that no theologian has ever been able to answer. Right. <laughs> um, it says, how can I get to God? It's like, well, I think you need to pray. And, and that, of course, goes into the park scene. But, okay, a couple of things. Well, Craven's father real father died when he was very young. He left the family, depending on the account that you read, when he was three or four and died within a year of a heart attack at work. And he was buried on either his fifth or sixth birthday. Again, depending on which interview you (laughs) hear Craven give. But then he also conveyed a story later where he asked his mother if he was having nightmares and asked his mother if she could come into his dreams with him. Oh, because Dylan, Dylan asked Heather that. Yeah. Yeah. And she says it only happens in the movies. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) Yeah. Which isn't what um, necessarily his mother said, but but she did say, but I will be here when you get back. You'll have to be brave while you're there. So it's just. (laughs) It's it's there. I mean, it's it's that moment is is from his life. <laughs> I think also in a sense, that's a great moment. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> also in a sense, you know, Dylan standing on top of that. I mean, this isn't something Craven literally did, but standing on top of that rocket, you know, reaching for God and saying God wouldn't take me is a very personal statement of Craven because he would see all these people, you know, accepting Jesus or feeling the spirit, whatever he interpreted to be, you know, through the words that he heard from the pulpits and stuff. And it was just like he said, I just never felt that. He never did. That was like, wasn't that like his biggest fear? Like, or something that, I don't know, something that he was scared of or something that just really bothered him was that he never, never actually felt that when he was hearing other people say they felt. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, to the point where he even kind of lied about it, (laughs) you know, where where he went forward on one of these altar calls and, and, 
you know, just wanted to be part of that community because I mean, that was, uh, he's, he's not incredibly down on that church community he says that was our church. That was our community. It was like a second family. So there were positives to it. The negatives were, you know, the don'ts and the, uh, you know, sort of the, the fear style of preaching, you know, of hell, yeah. fire, brimstone sort of elements uh, involved with that particular brand of Christianity. You know, so there, there were, he admits to some, he admitted in some interviews, at least to some positives to it all as well, um, <laughs> such as the community that was there, you know, the, the positive elements of that. But And the family element that I see in this movie too, is not just like Heather's family, but also like their movie family. Oh, absolutely. Which yeah. I kind of, which I kind of love because you're know, seeing Craven as the, the father, then mm -hmm. to me that says that like all the people that were then, you know, involved in the, if he's the father of Freddie, the people that were involved in the making of the movie were all his children. And they're you know, all so his children now. They're all his children now. So, <laughs> but that also goes into the sins of the father thing because yes, he's creating this new script or whatever. His children, like in the original Nightmare, start having nightmares. Mm -hmm. And his children are Robert England, Bob Shea. Heather Langenkamp. And John Saxon to some extent, you know, sort of like, I don't know. Does uncle. he ever admit to having, I don't think he ever, he doesn't admit, <laughs> he doesn't to, admit having to having any, dreams, yeah. nightmares. Neither does uh, Bob Shea, but you kind of get that from the look on his face when the, the phone, phone rings. Calls. Yeah. Yeah. Which the phone calls that Heather is getting and that's another thing that's kind of weird about what Freddie can do in this movie is the phone calls that Heather's been getting and the stuff that she gets in the mail, according to Craven, are from Freddie, from the Freddie entity. Yeah. Which you obviously can tell like when they you see the, the letters that she gets individual like burnt, you know, paper yes. that's got an individual individual letter on it. And when Dylan has them all laid out, they say answer the phone and then, you know, the phone rings. So that's obviously something like supernatural, you know, would have to... <laughs> be behind that for having that to, to work out but that's that's another thing I had thought of when I again when I was trying to apply the Freddy rules to this it doesn't work right well but I kind of like that so there's a there's an an early quote I mean like before Nightmare on Elm Street came out from Wes Craven where he says he thinks of movies themselves as dreams of a sort okay some something we create to you know work through these things sure yeah, and totally. and uh, and it's so in a sense freddy does only <laughs> exist in dreams even if it's <laughs> in the the dream the is movie, a movie even if the dream is a movie um, i like that that that's just another sort of layer that's that like you, layer 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 we're like well, underneath all these layers of nightmares <laughs> well and and that move the movie does it stripe from the beginning, I mean, there's the callback to building the glove right at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, One of my you know, favorite shots in this movie, though, is when um, whoever is playing... Uh, the the Freddy in the scene that they're shooting in the dream at the beginning yeah. of the movie. I love that shot when um, after he puts all the claws on the little mechanical thing, he just kind of like strokes the palm a little it. bit. I yeah, love it. I love that. <laughs> I love that. that, is, that and is the, a, the hand kind of kind of grabs a little kind bit. Kind of closes on him a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it uses the meat cleaver and then and then it cuts to you know Heather More blood. <laughs> Heather cutting you know a, a, you know covering Dylan's eyes and um you know there's it's a movie set oh okay uh, mm -hmm. so it's pulled back uh, but then 
it pulls back again because they wake up and it's it's been a nightmare. It's a dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he actually, obviously Chase is actually, his hands are actually cut like they are in the dream. Um, so I, so there's that. Uh, and then the cracks in the wall open up and they're, and they're the four claw, yeah. four claw marks. And you know, this might that, be a stretch. Go ahead. But this might be a stretch, but I've always seen, you know, the, um, the, the logo for Chase's company. Yeah. Cut to the chase. Cut uh, to the chase. Uh-huh. I always thought that it, it's just like, um, it's just like a black square with like a yellow crack. I always thought it was kind of like, it's the same angle as the, the claw marks in the wall. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that's cool. Um, I know that Craven actually used that as a conscious homage to uh, Roman Polanski's film Repulsion, oh, uh, mm-hmm. where where the the character uh, the character she, is mentally the, as, cracking, yeah, and the, the she, house around yeah, her as, cracks. Sure, yeah. And you know, if you if you think about, I I think you know when you look at Craven's influences, the movies that he first saw uh, before he started making movies. So the first movies he was able to see were all these, you know, sort of uh, uh, films of the 60s, sort of the European new wave. Those were the films he saw. So he saw Truffaut and he saw Fellini and Buñuel and people like that. So those movies, especially if you think about Fellini, like eight and a half, Mm -hmm. full of dreams. You know, there's that whole movie is a dream. You know, in a way, it's a dream and a circus and all these things, right? It's a rubber reality kind of movie. And then you've got Buñuel is the same way. Actually, the sheep at the beginning of Nightmare on Elm Street is apparently an homage to Buñuel. And I didn't realize that. I think it's from The Exterminating Angel because there's a bunch of sheep in that movie for no apparent reason. Yeah, so it's just kind of no wonder that these were the kinds of movies that he was drawn to. Yeah. So then when he started seeing horror movies, uh, the first one he saw was Night of the Living Dead. But people would ask him, what are your favorite horror directors? He would say Sam Raimi and David Cronenberg were the two that he mentioned most often. And you can kind of see that, they, that influence. They do not bit, you know? um, deal much with reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a weird altered reality yeah. in those. And so you can you can see that in Craven too, and I, I think that's interesting. And um, the other one that does the three tiered, uh, it's sort of in the middle of the movie, is where where you have uh, the claw comes out of the bed, mm-hmm. right, and is about to strike her, and she wakes yeah. up. And that's a then, great cut, by the way. And, oh, it fantastic. cuts to her like on the bed, and it's just it's gone in like two seconds. Yeah. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and it's and it's but it's the strips of yeah. the strips of the sheet. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's like it's still been affected, and she goes, and that's the one where she goes goes downstairs and and she sees and dylan tries to get her with the the blades and then she wakes up from that it's a dream in a dream earthquake. she wakes yeah it's a dream within a dream but here's the thing that's the answer the phone thing and the tongue comes out of the of the phone it's like and there's to some extent i'm thinking are we that's in another i dream? don't think that's a dream though yeah and, and because that's because when she takes dylan to the hospital straight to the hospital yeah. and so Dylan's like foaming like this, at the mouth <laughs> right right and and there's the you know the drool coming out of the phone receiver and everything is just wild stuff but it's this whole idea of you know freddie slowly pushing into into this real world there's Um, another thing to do with that that i hadn't noticed before either because it's it's very very subtle and i didn't even notice it until again craven actually talked about it in the commentary um after the scene after she has um she talks on the phone with um robert that freaking awesome painting that i still want a recreation i, I still painting. want a recreation it's of that so cool. <laughs> like hanging up yeah. on my wall there's another um scene of her sleeping and i don't know how i never noticed it before the lamps and the stuff on the walls 
are like kind of swaying uh-huh. back and forth. Her bed is like kind of tilting, like very subtly, like up and down. Like I was like, oh shit, <laughs> I had never noticed that before. So like that, the cracks in the walls, all the earthquakes, that's all like, yeah, this ent- Freddy entity trying to come out. It's so cool. Yeah. And tying it all up with the fairy tales. And you have another thing, and I hadn't thought about this until you mentioned it to me last night, was the idea that Rex and Nancy... Oh, I did it again. (laughs) Rex and Heather... Rex and Heather are kind of serve a similar purpose. They do. You know, they're both they're, the gatekeepers. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the guard that Wes talks about. Rex um, is an amazing... Okay, I love what Craven does in all of his movies, pretty much. Like, the way he gets kids and the way that they think is, like, so oh, perfectly yeah. represented with this. The, the, the way that to get to Freddy, the entities, like, hell, underworld, wherever, at the end, is through the, the end of the bed. The, the, right. the, the fact that, you know, if you just keep your toes curled up a little bit and you have your dinosaur there at the end of the bed guarding you, he can stop the boogeyman from coming up. Like, that's exactly how kids think. And it makes total sense to them, totally. you know? Well, and then Rex... <sighs> That damn dinosaur. Oh, man. He's, I love How can that thing, how this this little stuffed animal that just kind of, it's it's like you develop this relationship. It's like another character. Yeah. When you see him <laughs> yeah. destroyed I, later on, I was like, Rex, no. Well, well, a couple of things that, that you know, was after you said that, I was like, oh, he, Rex and Heather get the same wounds yep, on their, on them. You know, because Heather, they're fighting uh, the, Freddy, keeping uh-huh. keeping Freddy from yeah. coming into the real world. Yeah. So so Rex first, you know, he has the five cuts on his on his side, and Julie helps him fix it up. That Doctor Julie have an, they and have an operation. Doctor yeah. Dylan Who fix Rex. Yeah, I love. <laughs> okay, like you said, Julie rules. Julie's fucking awesome. Oh, she's so <sighs> fantastic. One of the great babysitters in horror, as you said. Mm-hmm. Awesome. But technically I would also call her even though she does not survive, I would call her like one of the best like heroine. Oh, she's a fi- she's a, she's not a final girl, but she's a heroine, yeah, for sure. Totally. Yeah. yeah. But I think the term final girl sometimes gets overused. I mean, cuz sometimes you have heroes that aren't that don't make it to the end uh who are just willing to stand up, you know, to it. Yep. Um but And what does Wes say to Heather? He calls Heather, the the gatekeeper. Yeah. Like in his in his nightmares that he's having about the script that he's writing, because she asked, like, can anybody stop him? And the dreams are telling him that it's Heather because yeah. she defeated says, him you know, the first that time. Yeah. She defeated. Yeah. She defeated him the first time. And she's saying, well, that was just a character I was playing. That wasn't really me. And I love this line that he says. And he's like, you gave Nancy her strength, though. Yeah. I thought that was a great line for her. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. You know, and I got to say, you can just see how much, because in, in the original Nightmare, Heather Langenkamp is really doing her first role. I mean, she's she's appeared in a couple movies before that, mm-hmm. but she's pretty green. She doesn't really know what she's doing. Her performance here, you just see this in the 10 years, you know, between the films, yeah. this massive growth in her skill as an actress. And I I think she's terrific in the original. I'm not trying to disparage that, but I think what she's doing here playing quote unquote herself is really, uh, really wonderful. And it's, you know, the great callbacks that she uses, like screw your pass and stuff. But um, (laughs) I love that. I knew you'd like that. (laughs) And I actually like the, I really love because her, her reading of, whatever you do don't fall asleep in the original is so iconic but here she says it completely different 
She says it mm-hmm. like you would say it to a child. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. You know, I mean, it's just, it's so sweet and, and so intimate. Whereas in the other, it's like this command to her boyfriend, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that can actually take us into, like I was saying, a way that I like to look at this sometime is as a redemption for Heather slash Nancy, both of them, in a uh-huh. way. Because, you know, like we were talking off mic before how Dream Warriors is great, but... <laughs> uh, there are a lot of buts about it. <laughs> Not so much of a fan of how Nancy is dispatched or even really how she's, I don't know. I wasn't really getting a a lot from her in, from her character in that like, she was just mostly like a guide for the kids who got kind of the more, the more depth to their characters than she does in that one. And then, yeah, the way she's killed, like, first of all, like she's way fucking smarter than that. She wouldn't have been tricked. And then just for her to be stabbed in the chest and then like tossed aside pretty much. Yeah. That really fucking sucks for (laughs) Nancy, for that character. Yeah. Personally, I think that both Nancy and uh, Donald Thompson are kind of done dirty in in Nightmare 3. You know, I know there are lots of people that three is their favorite of the series and more power to you. Um, But the more I live with the Craven iterations, the harder time I have with Nightmare 3. I I think it's the one that leads to Freddy being watered down. I think the evil of him is reduced dramatically when you give a motive. Uh, when you give a reason mm-hmm. for the evil, when you give a reason, you know, when, when you're the hundred, you're the bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Oh, there we go. That's why. That's not what Craven was trying to do. He was creating the most loathsome individual he could think of that was human would be someone who would harm a child. Yes, that is still what he's doing, but to get the joy out of it that he does too is yeah. is part of what disgusts him. But what Freddy is, is more than that. Freddy is the personification of the evils that his parent, that their parents did. You know, he, mm-hmm. he is a human representation in a, in this supernatural creature of, if you will, sin itself evil itself you know and it's it's kind of impossible uh when you put a human form on it i mean it it already makes it something else than than i think he entirely wants it to be but you know it's still (laughs) it still is you know i i don't know it's 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 really (laughs) esoteric it's hard to put it into words but i think that freddy krueger is you know the the things that one generation has said oh we solved it we're done your problem now, you know? I mean, whether that in the nineteen mid-1980s is, you know, the leftover issues from the Vietnam War or from Watergate or from the Civil Rights Movement and sort of the things that it were never taken care of there, those kinds of things, I think that's part of, that's a big piece of what Freddy represents. And yeah. to just make him the bastard son of a hundred maniacs takes a lot of that away. <laughs> it does. Just me. Okay. And I kind of, <laughs> you know, and I have fun with Nightmare 3, but oh yeah, I, I think it takes away. I think I, the, but, the story with Nancy and the kids is great. Excellent stuff. Yes. I'm, I'm right with you. And I think, you know, it, and also it brings in that whole idea of the authority figure who's trying to do something good for the kids. You know, Dr. Uh, Dr. What's her name? I can't remember her name in the movie. I don't know. You know, the interview with the actress, like, I thought I was the good guy, you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> I think that's really funny because she's just doing her job. You know, she's she cares about the kids too. She doesn't yeah. want to give them this experimental drug. Yeah, that they want to give to them. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. it, it it brings in that theme, you know, of of the well-meaning adult who kind yeah. of makes everything worse. You know, <laughs> uh, that that is very <laughs> except much for Nancy, Draven. except for Nancy, uh, <laughs> except and, for Nancy. Um, but Nancy, I think I, I like a lot of what they have her do in in Nightmare Three, but the way she's dispatched is unfortunate. I think isn't that cool? And and me having a lot more appreciation for her as a final girl, like again from when we talked about her on our nightmare episode, You're I was like, yeah, thank you. Um, I I always liked her. I don't know why I yeah. never saw her for like how great she was. It was always like, oh well, yeah, she's great, but there's other people that I like too, you know. And I never just never really focused on her as much. But really thinking about her and then thinking about her as an extension into Heather in this movie actually kind of makes me like her a lot more because um, especially in New Nightmare, it's very cool. Like once again, great to bring her back and have her be the star of the movie, have her carry this. This is her story, her and Dylan's story. Yeah. And that's that's what fans want to see. They want to see like their favorite final goes back. But one thing that this really kind of emphasizes is that that's not who people remember from horror movies. In the scene in the television studio, who's everybody cheering for? Exactly. Freddie. Yeah. Everybody is cheering for Freddie. Everybody is that whole interview is about like, oh, you have a son, you know, like completely ignoring the fact that she obviously like from the look on her face does not want to bring her personal life into this interview. Right. You know, would you ever trust a uh, Robert to be alone? With Obviously, he's like, doing a little jokey thing to introduce him. But it's just a normal interview. As soon as Freddie comes out, crowd goes wild after they're done at the tv studio heather's off in her room by herself waiting for robert who is surrounded by fans who all want his autograph and not hers when then immediately afterwards she goes to what's funny about that in and sorry to track back in the um never sleep again she said that scene is so real it's like story of my life yeah you know? exactly so <laughs> and she goes to the new line offices right after that she goes up to the receptionist and is asking for bob shea and the receptionist just kind of looks at her and is like is bob expecting you like she doesn't it's know who she is looks her up and down it's a really weird moment she's like yeah who do you think you are yeah it's just another instance of like you know nobody really knows who she is nobody really knows who the final girl is mm-hmm. sometimes you know like because it's the villain that ultimately become the the most popular the icons, from, yeah. Especially yeah, the icons, like especially from franchises like these. And she gets the chance to she chooses to take on the role of Nancy again because she knows that that's what she has to do to fight him, and she knows that she's the only one that can stop him, mm-hmm. and she does. And I think that's such a perfect uh, way to again because she was dispatched of so unceremoniously the last time we saw her for her to come back and be this victorious and to also be a little bit more victorious like in the role it's just i always like to call like characters like this i love seeing like the fierce mother roles yeah oh yeah like the mother that will like do any like one of my favorite scenes is that scene at the park the way that she just like runs like not even thinking about it just like runs up there and does not even think about herself and just like the kind of danger like that's obviously those like stunt people that were doing yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. catch when he falls off of the rocket but if that were real like what's the first thing that she says like after they, she's caught him she's like just make sure he's okay yeah. not even thinking about herself like I love that yeah and um, well and another thing she's not thinking about herself when she goes in because okay 
She walks into Dylan's room, and what's there on the floor is Rex completely ripped to shreds. Yep. And we are reminded, you know, because of the blood on her arm, right? We're reminded that she has the same cuts as Rex yep. and that she is very likely facing the same kinds of danger that Rex faced just <laughs> before she got yeah. there, right? So one, I mean, of the, one of the guardians is down yeah. for the count. And now she's the only one left. <laughs> yeah. And so, but what does she do? She, 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 she finds the, the little pill and she, she's mm-hmm. like, oh, Dylan's giving me a way to join him in his dreams. And I think yep. sort of redemption for the childhood craven, you know, having that experience where his mother couldn't come into his dreams to be able to yeah. write a story where a mother could. Yeah. You know, because and, all, was yeah. another thing that Dylan says, like when he's showing her, you know, how Rex protects him and, you know, she takes him down to the end of the bed and says like, look, there's nothing there. And then Dylan says, you know, it's different when you're not here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very true for children, you know, it's like, uh-huh. yeah, it's, of course, it's not scary when you're here to check to make sure there are no monsters under the bed. But when you're not here, that's when the monsters come out. That's right. <laughs> and for her to be able to, yeah, to join him in his dream and to actually save him like he like he needs her to. That's a great moment. It really is. And of course, for Heather, you know, yeah, it was very brave of her to confront some of the things that she was dealing with in real life. Like having the stalker was probably, I mean, very personal and very, very scary thing to have to revisit, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, it adds a a great layer to that character again. Like what does, you know, what does uh, the the person who played Freddy get? He gets all the fans and all the fanfare. What does she get? She gets a stalker out of, you know, what she did. Mm -hmm. You know, she doesn't, he gets all the good stuff. She gets all the bad stuff that's just kind of the that's the the sad part about some of that you know and that she and that she is ultimately victorious once again over freddy um at the end like i said it's good redemption for both her uh, as nancy and her as heather yes i think so i think so too we can talk more about julie julie another strong you know female character in this movie just one of those characters yeah not a final girl but still a heroine because mm-hmm. uh, like someone i like i tweeted something out about how you know she's one of horror's best babysitters and one of the comments was exactly why i think that is like someone said like she understood the assignment which was to protect that kid at all costs and that's exactly what she does that's right and you know that that scene where <laughs> where she picks up where the needle it's Yes. I know what's in that one. Do you know what's in this one? I don't, but I'm definitely going to stick you with it. Uh, <laughs> or what's going to happen to you when I stick you with it? <laughs> she's just as much of a mama bear as Heather was. Yes, exactly. In that situation. Totally. And um, originally, uh, as I think a lot of people probably know, she was originally a co-villain. Uh, she was originally written as this- In a way. Yeah. When she was supposed to be like possessed she, by him. Yeah, or, or manipulated, or she was the one who was actually sending the- uh, Yeah. Right. The letters in the mail. And uh, so it was it was sort of, um, yeah, it was not a willful kind of, you know, co-conspiracy right. kind of thing. It was she was being manipulated or something into having to help Freddie. And so there are actually a couple of shots in the movie that still have that as a subtext. But the any of that stuff is cut out. Yeah, I never yeah, I would have noticed it. I would not have noticed it if Craven hadn't said anything. <laughs> In the but some of the even. some of the kind of cool ideas that you know had to get left out was originally uh, Nancy was going to, and I mean Nancy, when she turns back into the Elm Street house, 
you know, we only see the exterior. Originally, they were going to actually, she was actually going to go into the original right. house. I think it works so much better that she goes. Yeah, to it does. And, and Craven, Craven thought so know. too. Um, because, you know, like the television and stuff like that. It wouldn't yeah. have worked. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked because, like, where, where does Dylan say that, like, this is where Freddy comes out? It is under his bed in yeah. his room. That's right. So it would have made sense for it, for it to be the original house. Yeah. It would have been a challenge to make that work, I think. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so it ultimately ends up working. Uh, I love the idea of on the freeway, instead of him being lifted up by a claw, he was going to be chased down by a claw mobile. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this this car that looked like uh, that looked like the Freddy Claw that was like kick up sparks and all this stuff. It was pretty rad design. Okay, I don't know. See, that's one of the things that kind of reminds me of what the sequels are like that aren't really my yeah. favorite. Which is why, which is why I kind of prefer the original and this one more than any of the sequels. Like, yeah. I don't need to see him turning into a pizza. Like, that's no, no, not no, that's like not scary I mean. or anything to me. Or like <laughs> him, like or him or anything, and like related to him turning into weird things. You know, like this one and the originals, they just feel a lot more more grounded in like the personal fears. You yeah. know, and there's nothing too crazy or you know happening in, in their dreams. They're, they yeah. they're still dreams, but they're mm-hmm. more reality based dreams. Well, and which are more is- scary to me. Starting in three, you have more of the sense of the dreamscape. You know, it's a it's yeah. a different world. It's whereas the first two, the dreams are all in familiar locations that are just slightly heightened mm-hmm. in some way. In the first one, it's mostly it's like mist. There's so much fog in that freaking movie. Um, uh, that <laughs> that's where a lot of it comes from. You know, is you know yeah. you're in a dream if there's fog. You know, um, <laughs> sure. Which is which is why I still think there's an interesting bookend. You know, the kids in the mist at the beginning when the car drives up to the school, <laughs> and then you know you have the jump roping kids at the end, and they're in the fog as the car drives off. So the whole the whole movie the is the whole a dream. movie is a dream, or could be. I don't know. It's a nightmare on Elm Street, right? Um, so <laughs> not the a a, yeah. And ultimately, I mean, sometimes budget restraints make for a better movie, <laughs> you know, uh, because <laughs> if you if you uh, sometimes you need someone to tell you no or to tell you that something <laughs> needs to be cut a little shorter occasionally. And okay, I'm kind of speaking about Shocker obliquely i like shocker a lot shocker's a i'm a big fan of shocker but that movie could sure use another pass through the editing bay um (laughs) and 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 so you just some things that you learn over time right and but i think with this movie he really hit the uh, nail on the head as far as balancing all of these ideas and the stretching the lengths of his imagination i don't think there's an ounce of fat on this movie i mean what what do you cut I, I, I watched it's this two one. hours long it does not it's two feel hours long. like it. it does not feel that at all yeah I mean the original is is 90 minutes and I'm almost like I could actually use a little bit more in that movie and so this is just kind of kind of perfect and for a horror movie to be two hours long it's really unusual yeah and you know there are a couple of things that I think why Nightmare and New Nightmare are so effective because well first of all Nightmare on Elm Street Craven spent a lot of time refining messing with that script over time because he just didn't have any Anything else he was working on. And so the movie that you have is sort of like the bare bones. This is exactly what needs to be in the movie, <laughs> you know, and nothing more. And this one, I think you have him. He spent the last 10 years thinking about what Freddy Krueger is because people keep asking him what Freddy Krueger is. 
He all his mm-hmm. interviews that he does between 1984 and 1994 and beyond, frankly, are about Freddy Krueger. <laughs> you know, uh, because this was such just exploded into the cultural zeitgeist, right? Sure. So he was going to be asked about that and nightmares and the nature of reality a lot. Uh, those were the kinds of movies people wanted him to do. And he did so, a lot of them. <laughs> and he did. He did. And because, you know, there's a whole bunch of movies sort of deal with the realms between worlds as far as perception and reality and dreams and hallucinations. I mean, there are whole massive sequences of Serpent and the Rainbow that are hallucinations. Shocker has a lot of stuff in dreams, but it also has stuff in media haze, you know. (laughs) People Under the Stairs technically takes place in a real world, but it also feels like it's a not real world. It does. (laughs) You know, it feels like it's it's parallel universe. Yeah. And the same same that house is existing in a different dimension than the rest of the world, I swear. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. And then I think the same thing is happening in my soul to take. And I think that's why people had a hard time swallowing it because, okay, seven babies born with an hour each other on the same night. What? In the same town? You know, I mean, there, there's some things about it that are like, I, I don't know how this, it, it feels like it's a slightly removed dimension from, yeah. from where we are. And I think that is just shows what kind of stuff that Craven was interested in, you know? I feel like I'm just sort of talking about I know. stuff now <laughs> and not, not really talking about anything. I've kind of covered everything that I wanted to to hit. Um, I feel like from, this has just been I've another one of those, yeah, where we're, we're mostly not really talking about specifics about the movie because it's not really as important as I think what he was trying to say. And I think what he was the trying ideas, to say yeah. and the ideas that are being presented here are so, so fascinating and just so smart. I love that. That's one of the things that I've always loved about Craven was his yeah again his movies were never not never but most of the time they were a lot more than just what was on the surface and that's what makes mm-hmm. him somebody that really should be revered uh, as much as he is but probably maybe even more when you really think about it I think it's benefits his films ultimately that he wasn't into horror mm-hmm. And that he you didn't know, even have all the answers for the questions he was, you know, trying to ask. No. He was just interested in addressing them and really dissecting and discussing them through the movies. Yeah. And leave it kind of maybe leaving that up to the viewer. Yeah, the discussion is far more interesting than the answer. Oh, of course. Yeah. I think to someone like Craven, you know. And I think that's why a lot of his movies um take some time to catch up to because he didn't have a lot of big hits. <laughs> I mean, there are even some that I still have to kind of maybe go back and reassess. I haven't seen Serpent in the Rainbow in a long time, but I remember being like, yeah, really confused by that movie and not really knowing what to make of it. And that's probably one that I think I could probably get a lot more now, you know, than when I first watched it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of his movies have grown on me because at first I was like, oh, People Under the Stairs is it's good. Now I watch it. It's actually one of my favorites. It's probably I, in my top five. There's Yeah, there's so much more going yeah. on with that one than, than yeah. I thought before. Yeah, again. Yeah, and My Soul to Take, my first viewing, I did not like it. Uh, but I, I've rewatched, I've out of necessity, you know, had to rewatch it a few times. And every time I watch it, I like it more. I, I think I get a little bit more into what he's doing. You know, I kind of mm-hmm. get it a little bit more. There are some that I think, you know, he did sort of as for hire kinds of things that maybe aren't quite as, as interesting. You know, Hills Have Eyes Part Two is 
okay, I guess. It's got its moments. Um, <laughs> uh, Deadly Friend has got its moments. Uh, I love Deadly you, you Friend. Know, so. I know you love I know you love Deadly Friend. But I, I think that there are the ones that he really poured himself into, yeah. uh, the ones that he had the greatest creative control over are the ones that are the most interesting. And he had a control over a lot of them. I mean, the ones that are kind of lackluster, like, you know, like Cursed, uh, he had so much interference on that movie. I still like it the way it is, but uh, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I, They probably could have been a lot better. By the time he turned that print in, he was done. He had had other movies he really wanted to do that got pulled out from other under him. Um, because he had to keep coming back and they essentially shot that movie three times yeah. and uh, it's just a shame that the, and, and it's ironic because there was such this big success with the first scream and the second scream that it wasn't just like oh just do whatever you want to do you know the <clears throat> people in charge at Miramax I'm not going to say who they just felt like they had to have their say and it was all ego and it's and it screwed those movies over Let's yep. call it what it is. And then you had, you know, in 2005, he had releases something like Red Eye, which is just dynamite. It just shows him because those people just said, hey, we got Wes Craven. Let him do his thing. And he did. And he put out a banger of a great thriller. Says all you need to do is make it PG-13 and you're good. All right. I'm on it. Yeah. And he did. That one might be coming so. up later on the show. FII. Yeah. 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 I think that movie is underrated. So. Oh, God. I love that one. Yeah. It's terrific. It's one of my, it's of his later period. That's definitely one of my favorites. So. Well, are you feeling good about that conversation? I'm though? feeling good about that. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I will just mention my favorite moment in all of New Nightmare, probably. Like in a little impromptu thing that Heather did <laughs> when she freaking elbows that nurse <laughs> in the stomach. Yes. I love that. It's the best moment. <laughs> She doesn't even movie. look. It's just like a no look. <laughs> Great stuff. Wes Craven. That's all I got to say. Whenever I um, remember seeing like Craven talking or people talking about him, it was always just kind of a thing. I was like, you know what? I, I really like that dude. Like he seems like a really good dude and seems like everybody who knows him really likes him. You know? So, okay. One of the um, horror conventions that I went to one year, they were doing a big scream reunion uh, with the, some of the guests that were appearing there. And this was after... Uh, Craven had passed. So they had um, some of the guests that were there were Rose McGowan, Skeet Ulrich, Matthew Lillard, and David Arquette. Okay. And they doing, they were doing a thing where you could get a photo op. You could either go and meet them individually and get pictures or whatever, or you could have a photo op taken with all four of them in the picture. And that's what I did. And um, I have this t-shirt. Uh, I have like a Wes Craven tribute t-shirt that i got you remember horror blocks mm. those little subscription box you used to get every month that had like horror shit in it i used to get those and in one of them was this um tribute show for west craven just had it's like a drawing collage of like all the different like villains you oh, know from cool. his movies yeah. So I decided I wanted to wear that when I was going to get this photo op uh, picture taken. So when it was my turn to go up to there, get posed for my photo, uh, David Arquette saw my t-shirt and he had to, he's like, stop for a second. He was like, oh my gosh, man, you got that t-shirt. And he pointed it out to like everybody else and said, look, you guys, like, that's a shirt that's like a tribute to Wes. And like, I could see on all their faces, they kind of had a little moment of like, oh man, you know, that's <laughs> great. You know, it was just like one of those moments for me, like that was like, yeah, he really was loved and like people loved working for him and with him, you know, and that that really showed that kind of reverence just, you know, in seeing a little tribute, you know, to him on my T-shirt mm -hmm. was enough to like bring that out in them. I thought that was really sweet. Yeah, I I've, love that moment. <laughs> I've heard I've heard David Arquette. I, I can't remember 
what I mean, yeah, he worked with was. him the most. Yeah, you know, he, of those people. Mm-hmm. He actually called Wes his hero yeah. on multiple occasions, which I I think is you know I I never met the man, <laughs> but I gotta say you know when he passed, that's the celebrity death I felt more than any that I can think of. Same. It was just like, oh man, unbelievable. <sighs> so it's, you know, it's unfortunate his last couple movies were just kind of at the time were not particularly accepted and not particularly liked. Both My Soul to Take and Scream 4 were kind of panned and <laughs> it's sort of unfortunate. But Ew. Scream 4 has had quite the renaissance, I got to say. Hell um, yeah. It's just like, wow, the guy was a prophet. But Several times over. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think I think learning about as much, because I started learning about Wes Craven when I was little. I mean, I was pretty young when I started recognizing his name. Mm-hmm. He was the first, like, um, horror mm-hmm. director that whose name and face I knew. Yeah, I think the only director I knew who they were before that was maybe Steven Spielberg. Maybe George Lucas, but Wes Craven was one of those first ones where I was like, I know who that is. And I would see his name pop up in Fangoria or wherever. And it would be like, I I would be looking forward to knowing more about, about him. And then when I later started seeing interviews and reading interviews and studying him and researching, and when I got into the writing thing, you know, actually researching extensively, just, just learning about what... Uh, what kind of a human he was, was powerful. Obviously, you know, not a perfect person as no one is, but someone who it would be nice to be able to emulate. Yeah. Someone that it would be nice to be like. So a, a gracious, smart, funny, humble man, you know, someone who, who I think, uh, you know, he had ultimately good relationships with his children, even though it had been a long time since he was that marriage had dissolved early, uh, unfortunately, when they were young. But, you know, those kinds of things that he continues to have these lasting relationships with the people that he works with and, um, you know, his family and various uh, things like that. And no ego about him ever that I ever saw no that was one of the things that like really drew me i first saw him um the, my vhs copy of scream had like one of those um you fast forwarded through the credits like after the credits there was a little uh like a behind the scenes thing at the end of the tape kind of one of the i think one of the original ones is probably still on <laughs> the yeah the, the blu-ray or whatever of just like a short little like five minute thing with like some little onset interviews with the the cast and crew i remember that yeah and I just remember looking. I was like, okay, this is the guy that that's that made this movie. Okay, cool. And just I just remember like the way he the way he talked, the way he being so soft spoken and so sweet, and yet, uh, and then of course like later on learning like some of the other movies that he had made, I was I couldn't I couldn't put the two together. You know <laughs> that this guy yeah. made Last House on the Left. Oh, seriously, but that's what kind of intrigued me yeah. uh, about him and. And yeah, just the way he talked about his movies and other movies, and he was never like one of those, never didn't seem like he was ever like one of those horror directors that was just gonna you know, show off with his, his knowledge or you know anything like that. Just very matter of fact with the, the things that he was into and the things that he knew and, and worked into his movies, you know, and just, yeah, like you said, just being very humble. Yeah. And, you know, I think it was nice that in, 
the, the new Scream movie. Oh, uh, they really tried to honor <laughs> tears, <laughs> honor him, honor his his legacy. Obviously, a character was named Wes, and uh, uh, for good yeah. reason, you know, and for a particular reason. I we won't spoil it. And then, you know, of course, the the very well. The, there's the a party scene before for he, that character Wes, and it, yeah. there's literally a banner yeah, that says yeah. <laughs> like for Wes. For and like, Wes. Yeah, before I told you, I was like, I think before I saw the new scream, I was like, there are two words that I see. If I see these at the end of the this movie, I'm gonna f- start fucking crying. And that was for Wes, and that's exactly what it was. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He, they came. Yeah, he was given a dedication card yeah. at the end. I was like, of the movie if I too. if I saw that, uh, I was gonna, so, I knew I was going to cry, and I definitely did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, you had your your vanguard with David Arquette, Courtney Cox, and Nev Campbell, all just sort of protecting that yeah. legacy too. I think, but it's still its own movie. Ah, so before before we start uh, turning into blubbering messes here, we can <laughs> <laughs> probably wrap up here. Huh? Yeah, that's great. Hey, this was this so, was the origin of the show, was it not? We haven't really had a chance to talk about it was. <laughs> Wes Craven and yep. our love for him. So there we go. Yeah, we we were gonna we were gonna be a Wes Craven show, um, but <laughs> but you know, hey, what we have is really good. So um, anyway. Uh, we're going to go from one horror icon to another. Hell yeah, we are. For our next episode, we are talking about adaptations of Stephen King. Yeah. And so we're picking, and, and these are not, not necessarily- Not the, our, the original one. <laughs> right. Not necessarily <laughs> our, number, our number one favorite adaptations of his, but I think ones that we greatly admire. Though, I mean- I, my choice mine's, might be mine's my pretty, favorite. Yeah, it's it's the one I have the most fun with. I've I've known. I've been. I think it was might have. It was the second King adaptation I saw, and it, so it, I've always loved this movie. <laughs> mine is pretty high up there. I think I think it might actually be my favorite. Okay, yeah. For there's for another me, like huge favorite that I'm saving for a different topic <laughs> yeah yeah uh there there are lots of options uh in this category yep. <laughs> let's put there it that are. way um there are some really bad movies in this category <laughs> yeah as, now uh no such keep... thing as a bad movie brian uh remember yeah there are bad movies <laughs> hey i don't believe that there are some bad movies that i enjoy though one of them is Stephen King's well, own Maximum not... Overdrive. I love that <laughs> Maximum movie. Overdrive is amazing. Don't. I love Maximum <laughs> Overdrive. So, okay. My choice is uh, from 1983, John Carpenter's Christine. And then keeping it in the 80s with mine from 1989, Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery. Excellent. So um, we've got we've got a couple of King adaptations for you. Uh, always fun to dive into horror. We don't do it all the time, so it's it's fun to do that we when we can. Horror sometimes. back to back. That's right. That's well, it's funny cool. because originally our choices were going to be different uh, for for this. Yes. Um, so this is we went from sort of non horror Stephen King to horror Stephen King. So um, <laughs> well, the, the horror in different ways, I think, in, in those those other yes. choices. But uh, anyway, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Also because we probably mentioned it before i feel kind of bad now like we kind of messed up our little uh mike flanagan thing we had going on we were like oh we're gonna talk about like so many different mike flanagan things and we only did two, two. but um, that's okay we were originally gonna do gerald's game and i we mentioned it on here a couple of times 
mm-hmm. that was coming up as a discussion. And and I was going to do Dolores Claiborne. So, right. We're going to do like a little double of that, like the most bummer fucking double I could yeah, imagine. Yeah. The the eclipse <laughs> the eclipse series. Uh, both films are really great, but they're amazing. Uh, yeah, and they're amazing. As much as I admire the fuck out of Gerald's game, and I would love to talk about it. I would love to talk about. Man, man, love to talk about. But I, it did have a huge effect on me. Um, if you know what that movie's about, you probably know that that kind of gets into some like really heavy shit. That you know what I don't really want to get into right now in my life. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good, and I don't really want to talk about that stuff right now. <laughs> That's pretty much it. So we're going to put it on the back burner for now. Maybe come back to it later. But right now, I'm good. Yeah. So we're going to talk about fun We're going to talk about more movies. fun ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These are, these are, and you know, it's funny because both of these, you know, I mean, they're horror movies, but they're 80s horror movies just sort of sit different in a lot of ways. A lot of them do. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not. They're wild and imaginative. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there you go. I mean, there's there's an element of fun while still having some, you know, great depth and insight. Uh, I think um, Pet Cemetery. I haven't watched in a long time. I have a feeling I haven't watched it since I've had kids, and it's gonna. Oh yeah, there you go. It's gonna rip my guts out probably. Um, Yeah. And hey, there's a Miko Hughes connection from our. Oh yeah, there is from our episode today so so it, it, this is when uh miko hughes was was kind of the shit when it came to uh horror <laughs> movies right being the, being the creepy kid and being movies. the creepy kid yeah <laughs> he's so little in pet cemetery too he is oh my goodness <sighs> he's so good though yeah yeah, Miko really... is great in New Nightmare. By the way, we didn't mention Miko. He really He's a great is. little kid actor. I, I think uh, what he conveys in uh, in so many of his sequences is is just so yeah. powerful. And I love the relationship that Nancy, oh, that Heather, Heather. And, that Heather <laughs> and and Miko have. It feels very real. It feels very yeah. lived in. It and, does. and that's mm-hmm. good. It feels feels like a real mother son relationship, and that's. Awesome. Very awesome. Okay. So we're foregoing recommendations because, you know. Uh, we just are. <laughs> yeah. Though we, I think we can jointly recommend a movie that might be fun to go with New Nightmare that has a little bit of meta quality to it, I guess. A little twist on the genre. Uh, the, the remake of Slumber Party Massacre we both watched. Yeah. And, yes. <laughs> and, and, and really had a good time with. So, um, hey, if you haven't seen that yet. Is a <laughs> what was that sci-fi channel put that out? I can't remember, but I Scream, think so. Yeah, Scream Factory put out the disc, and and it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's it's really a blast, and and a and a clever twist. Speaking of uh, all sorts of great sort of twists on the genre, you know, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, that's perfect. All right, socials. Should we give our oh. socials? Yeah. Um. Eventually, I will be on Twitter at Brian D. Kuiper. <laughs> I haven't been there lately because I just haven't had the bandwidth for it. Sorry. I'll that be back. That is perfectly fine. Trust me. Uh, you can find me at Michelle in Agen. And uh, if you don't follow the show yet, uh, find us at Movie Life Pod. I think we're probably going to be able to do another giveaway uh, when it comes to our Pet Cemetery episode. Um, Sweet. And so so keep an eye out there. And yeah, we'll have some stuff follow for us you. anyway. Not just yeah. for free stuff. Follow us and talk to us. 
That's about, true. Talk to us about movies. Tell us what you think of the episodes, whatever. We like interacting with people who listen. Yeah. It's really cool that people actually do listen for one thing. <laughs> and hey, we we've, we've we've gotten up over 5000 downloads and we're grateful <gasps> yeah. for that and uh, it's uh, we've actually been over that for, for for a little while now. Um mm-hmm. and so we thank you for listening and thank you for rating and reviewing uh those of you who have done that as well and if you haven't yet just, you know, take a second, five stars, couple nice words, good show. We haven't show, got one in a long time. Whatever. Come on, whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Drop drop that in. That that works for us, okay? Totally. All right. All right, Brian. What are we gonna do next time? We will see you next time. In your dreams. Miss me. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>